You know, we, uh, we live in a day that, where I think people really struggle with authority and how to relate to authority. One of the reasons for that is that they've seen authority abused, and maybe they've had really bad experiences, and so people just tend to balk at that. It's a, it's a, it's a day when people are kind of cynical, actually, about anyone who uh, is in an authority position. Paul writes to his young disciple Timothy in the book we call Second Timothy in our Bible, and he says some things like this. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now, I believe that we live in a day just like that. Did you know that the number one song on the billboard charts right now, number one, and some have called this the number one song of the summer, is by the group called Magic, and it's the song Rude. It celebrates, or it talks about rather, the, uh, this young man who went to uh, the father of a girl he's in love with, and he asked for her hand in marriage, and the father um, says no. And so the song talks about going to marry that girl, going to marry her anyway, no matter what you say. Now, that's number one song on the Billboard charts. But those of you who are a bit older and may not be familiar with that song, you know that rebellion against authority has been kind of celebrated in the music of the culture for years. Remember John Cougar Mellencamp? I fight authority, authority always wins, right? Remember Janet Jackson? who's saying, when I was 17, I did what my father said. I let my mother mold me, did what my father told me, let my mother mold me, and the song goes on. But it's different now. I'm going to call the shots now. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Rebellion against a sense of authority. But probably the all-time song in rebellion against authority was from what's got to be everybody's favorite musical group of all time, Twisted Sister. You remember Twisted? You remember Twisted Sister? And the song that said, we're not going to take it. No, we ain't going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore. We're right. We'll, we're free. We'll fight. You'll see. And it's a song about just rebelling against authority. This is a fight back, push back, talk back, answer back, get on back kind of generation. Paul and Carolyn Northrup are dear friends, and they're a couple who's been in Grace Fellowship for many years now, wonderful servants of God. Paul's dad was actually a pastor. He pastored uh, for decades and a wonderful guy. He's since gone on to be with the Lord. But in the later years of his pastorate, he had an unusual experience. He, young couple came to him. They wanted to get married. He agreed to officiate their wedding. But he didn't do premarital counseling in this case. I think he vowed never to do that again after this experience. 
And the couple wanted traditional vows, and so that's what he gave them. Now, there's nothing right or wrong about the traditional vows. You can write your own vows. You can do all kinds of vows, but, but this is what they wanted. So they're standing there at the marriage altar, and Pastor Northrup is going through the vows. The guy's already said his. It's time for the girl's vows. And he gets to that part of the traditional vows that says to love and obey. But she doesn't repeat the line. There's a dramatic pause, and then she says, I don't obey anybody. Awkward. It, whatever you may feel about that, that created this incredibly awkward moment. I think that is kind of common and, and typical in our day and age. But to a culture like this that struggles with any sense of authority, even corporations are trying to come up with some sort of org charts that represent flatness where nobody really apparently has any authority. They, they realize eventually that somebody has to have authority to call the shots, but they, they try to create a scenario where that is downplayed. In a culture like this, Paul has, rather Peter, has something radical to say. Let's look at this passage together. The book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, and look at what Peter actually says. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Let's look together today and see what we can learn about this kind of topic, because you've got to admit, this is one of the most politically incorrect ideas in our culture that we could possibly talk about. In fact, I, was, I, I just thought about the title of this sermon, and I thought, people are going to throw up all over on the title even. They're going to go, yuck, learning to be submissive. Boy, that's going to draw men off the streets. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's the last thing we want to learn to do. But let's study together what Peter has to say. And my prayer and goal all week long is that we would not only learn more of what is really meant by this word submission, but learn the most important part of that, and that is submission to God's will. So let's jump right in. What does it mean to be submissive? I've learned through the years that sometimes it's helpful to talk about what something does not mean in order to understand it better. First of all, being submissive does not mean weakness. It does not mean weakness. In fact, Peter here, as we'll see, uses Jesus as the ultimate example of submission. And Jesus certainly wasn't weak. Look at this verse, verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When Jesus submitted his life to the Father's will and died on the cross for us, as he was being abused and spat upon, as he was being Killed on that cross, he could have called 10,000 angels and wiped them all out. It wasn't that he was weak, but he was submitted to the Father's will. His submission was power and strength under control. Submission is not 
weakness. Second, submission does not mean passivity. God is not asking us here to become a doormat, so no matter what the situation, no matter what the scenario, we just let people do anything they want to do. We let them run over us. We let them do whatever they good and well please. That's not what this is talking about at all. In fact, Jesus challenged the authorities in his day when they had made the temple which was meant to be a house of prayer and worship, into a den of thieves, Jesus challenged the authorities. He overturned the tables of the money changers, and he gave a clear message here. You guys have turned this into something that God never intended. In Acts chapter 4, we read that Peter and John, in the early days of the church, when they were proclaiming the gospel message, they were told never to preach again in the name of this Jesus Christ. And they said, sorry, we're not going to obey that. They said, in essence, we're going to challenge your authority because we must obey God rather than people. And they went ahead and preached anyway and were willing to deal with whatever the consequences were. When the Nazi war criminals claimed after World War II with all the atrocities that they committed during World War II when they claimed, look, we were just following our authorities. We were just doing what we were told. The court and society has decided that no, they shouldn't have just passively gone along. They should have challenged their authorities when what was happening to people was so blatantly inhumane. So, submission does not mean weakness. It certainly doesn't mean passivity. So, what is it? Let me give you a brief definition here. First, it is a decision. This is something that comes from the volitional part of us. It comes from the inside out. It's a choice. It's a decision that we make. Secondly, it's an unforced decision. Sometimes the Greek language in the Koine Greek of the New Testament helps us understand something a little better. And this Greek verb translated submit is in the middle voice in the Greek text. The significance of that is it doesn't mean you're forced into it. In fact, if you're forced to submit, it's not really biblical submission at all. The middle voice indicates that you are placing yourself in this kind of posture, both attitudinally and actually with your actions. Third, submission, as we go on and complete the sentence, is an unforced decision to display appropriate respect. You might want to write that word in for those in authority over you and to do so with a humble attitude. Notice how Peter kind of sums it up with a pithy statement here in verse 17 when he says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, I would suggest to you today that one of the reasons submission is so rare is because it requires this very difficult and very rare quality called humility. Now, you can search the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, and you will not find a quality, I believe a character quality, more respected, more revered, more valued than genuine humility. And 
Submission requires that. But submission is not only hard to attain, it's hard to maintain. I think we'd agree, right? I mean, it's hard to get and it's hard to keep. It's one of those things when you think you've got it, you probably realize that you don't really have it. I, I read about a church that actually gave their pastor a medal, a genuine medal for his humility. And then they fired their pastor because he wore it. Yeah. And that's kind of the way humility works. When you think you've got it, you realize, well, I don't really have it after all. It's pretty elusive. And so Jesus is the perfect example, and I think that's why Peter refers to him here in this passage. He was submissive to his Father's will. When he yielded his life to the Father's will, although he was equal with God, according to Philippians 2, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became obedient to death. He was submissive to his parents. The Bible makes very clear that Jesus was subject to Mary and Joseph, even though he was superior to them. He voluntarily, as that verb says, put himself in the place of submission. He was submissive to the authorities of his day. Even though they were corrupt, even though they were wrong in what they were doing, he submitted to the authorities of his day. And when Pilate asked him questions, he had to tell the truth. He submitted to the authority, and he submitted to the people who crucified him. And I want you to hear this. If Jesus had not voluntarily submitted to that, we would still be lost. We would still be in our sins. And I want to suggest to you by extension that any time it's appropriate for us to submit ourselves to whatever appropriate authority and to do so by our own choice humbly and to place ourselves in that situation, something is lost and somebody is harmed when we refuse to do that. Verse 21 puts it like this, for you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. That's what submission is. But let's ask a quick question here and just look at it briefly. Where does submission actually begin? And here's my answer to that. It begins with acknowledging the authority of God in our life. Submission begins by acknowledging the authority of God in our life. I talked to a young girl recently in the lobby, lobby time that we have between services, and she came up, she's a teenage girl as far as I could tell, probably about that old, and she came up and announced to me after we chit-chatted for a moment or two that, yes, she was sleeping with her boyfriend. Now, I wondered why she was volunteering this information, but I, I think I soon found out. Uh, she was sleeping with her boyfriend, and she said sternly, and it's nobody's business. That's my business. It's nobody's business but mine. And as I asked questions, I found out I guess she wanted to tell me this because her mom and dad were distraught when they got this information, and they were telling her how wrong it was, and they were telling her it had to stop, and so on, and so she wanted to let me know that this was her choice, this was her life, this was her business, and nobody else's business. And after listening for some time and asking some questions, I said, she kept saying, I can't see why it's such a big deal. And I said, well, well, here's why it's a big deal. 
Because you've got a fundamental decision you have to make. Are you really in charge of your own life, or does God, in His Word, have a right to tell you what to do? That's why it's a big deal. Because behind this choice that you're making is the question, does God in His Word have a right to tell you and me what to do? And see, the Christian dares to declare, yes, God does have a right to tell us what to do for two basic reasons. First of all, because He's our Creator. He made us from the dust. The Bible says he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. And however you believe all the details of creation happen, one thing Scripture is crystal clear on is that God is creator. That belief, my friends, is just not up for grabs. And by the way, that's the reason that Peter can boldly declare here that we ought to fear God. Look at what he says in verse 17. And if you address his, this is chapter 1, by the way, and if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in, are you catching this next word? Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. I just want to say to you that if you don't have an appropriate respect, and yes, I'll use the word because the Bible uses the word, if you don't have an appropriate respect and appropriate fear of Almighty God, your Creator, I simply would humbly suggest to you, you may not be as smart as you think you are. Wise people understand that God, the Creator, has a right to speak into our lives. And second, he's not only our creator, he is the owner of all. Look at this psalm from Psalm 50. The psalmist declares, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. You realize that God is not only our creator, but he's the owner of it all. Now, I know I say my house, my car, my body, my family, but I don't really own any of those things. None of those things are really mine. I say my house, but one day I'm going to die and it's going to go to somebody else. Somebody else is going to live there. I say my car... But one day it's going to stop running, and I envision that one day one of these big uh, cranes is going to pick it up, and it's going to be put in a compressor, and it's going to be all compressed together in a little rectangle, and the metal's going to be melted down and reused. I say my family, my children, but they're not really mine. I don't own them. They really belong to God. I say my body, but one day this body is going to cease to function, and it's going to go back to the dust from which it came. You see, everything that I think of as mine is not really mine at all. It really belongs to God Almighty. He's the owner of everything. And here's, here's the reason God has a right to tell us what to do. He not only created us, okay, but for Christians, I want you to hear this, he's redeemed us. 
He took us in our sin, and he said, look, I, I want to find a way for you to be forgiven. I want to find a way for you to be with me forever in heaven. And that's why Jesus came. God has a right to speak into our lives. He's the creator of all. He's the owner of it all. And when Jesus came to this earth, according to Matthew 28, 18, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus healed with authority. Jesus taught with authority. In fact, one of the first reactions to Jesus when he came along is, whoa, a new, a te a new teaching and with authority. That was the way people perceived his teaching. And he has a right to speak into our lives. But here, here, here's what the biblical record would suggest, that while all that is true, humankind in our rebellion chooses to constantly rebel against that. And if we don't like something God has said, we create scenarios where we go, well, my God would never say that. My God would never want me to be unhappy. My God would never want this to be true. And usually that's the problem, isn't it? It's your God, not the God of the Bible. <laughs> it's the God that we've created in our imagination. It's the God that we would like to be there, like to be real, but it's not the real God, the living God. And so wherever God puts the line of morality, we usually want to move it. Look at the Ten Commandments. Every one of them we break on a regular basis in one way or another, either in thought, word, or deed. I mean, just take commandment number three. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Thousands of names throughout history, but there, there's one that God says, I want you to hallow this name. I want you to treat it with respect. I don't want you to use it lightly or vainly or in an empty way, and I, and I don't want you to use it in profanity in any way. Because there's really no value in that. And there's absolutely, it's true, there's none. And yet when somebody hits their hand, their finger with a hammer, what do they say? They never say, Jimmy Fallon, that hurts. Never say that. Oh, my Buddha, boy, that's, it. that's painful. No, thousands of possible names, but what do we say? Jesus Christ. Wherever God draws the line, we're going to get in God's face and go, no, it's not, it's not where I'm going to draw the line. I want to move the line. That's the record of both Old and New Testament. We won't take time to go there, but there's actually a line in the book of Judges where it says that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And that describes our attitude toward authority. So in the time we have remaining, I want us to look now, turn a little page, turn a little corner, and look at four good reasons to practice appropriate authority. Because I would assure you, this is a big issue in the lives of people who want to be followers of Jesus Christ, people who say, Jesus is my Lord, he's my Savior, I want to follow him, I want to be a person of the word. Trust me, what we're talking about right now is a big deal. Let me put it to you again in similar ter terms that I put it to that young teenage girl. It's a big deal because are we calling the shots in our own lives or does God have a right 
to actually speak into our lives and actually guide us and tell us what to do. So let me give you four reasons why it's a great idea to practice appropriate submission. First of all, a submissive spirit honors God. If your Bible is open here, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's as simple as this. A defiant spirit dishonors God, but a submissive spirit honors God. Now let's suppose that if Let's say you're a parent, and you drop off your very young child in kids' celebration. And let's say that 10 minutes into the worship service, you know, you've got a little number, and, and 10 minutes into the service, uh, your number comes up on the screen, and you go, oh, I'm, I'm needed. Something's going on. And so you, you walk to the appropriate classroom, and, and the leaders there tell you that your young son they told him to please be seated. He's not been real cooperative, you see. And, and he stood up on his seat instead of sitting down and just kind of dared them to do something. And, and while they said, put these things away now, it's time to start the lesson, instead of putting them away, he said no and began to throw them all over the room. And uh, instead of being quiet as the te teachers and leaders ask him to be quiet, let's say that he just began to scream. Now, how would you feel as a parent well, you'd probably be a bit embarrassed. You'd think, oh, they think I'm a lousy parent. You'd probably have all these thoughts. You'd be frustrated. You'd probably feel a little anger. You'd just be embarrassed about it all. And you might even feel ashamed of the situation. I don't know. But one thing for sure, you'd be dishonored. Now, let's suppose that in a different scenario, you go all the way through the service. You put your child in kids' celebration. You come back at the end of the service, and boy, the leaders and the teachers are just smiling. They say, listen, can we just ask you something? Your child must be the greatest child on the planet because he did everything we asked him to do. When we asked him to sit down, he was immediately sitting down, and he did it so respectfully. And anything we asked him to do, he said, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. When we asked for the toys to be put away, he was already doing. We didn't even have to tell him. I mean, your child is wonderful. How would you feel? You would feel very honored. Why? Because your child is such a model, so obedient so submissive to appropriate authority. And the same is true with us as followers of Jesus Christ. God is honored when our lives are lived with excellence. Second, it enhances our testimony to unbelievers. I like verse 15 a lot. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now let me tell you what's behind that verse. These early Christians that Peter is writing to were being accused of all kinds of evil things. They were being slandered in their character. For instance, they were accused of atheism. You say, how could that be? Because they only believed in one God, and in the Greco-Roman world, most people were polytheists. They believed in many gods. Caesar was considered deity. There are all kinds of other gods, and because they wouldn't worship all these other gods, they were accused of being atheists, and some of, them, some of them were suspected of insurrection against the state, against the government. So they were slandered. They were suspect. People looked at them with a leery eye, a suspicion. 
They were also accused of cannibalism. You know why? Because they talked about eating and drinking the blood of Christ, His body and His blood. And people who didn't understand that or know what that was about, when they celebrated communion, they thought, oh, these people are weird. They were accused of cannibalism. And they were also accused of incest because they called each other brother and sister, and they talked about loving one another all the time. And they had these things they called love feast, where they got together and just spent time together. Now, how do you respond when you're slandered like that? Well, here's Peter's advice. Look. You live such excellent lives that when you're getting slandered in this way, look, anybody who has any interest in the true story, anybody who has an interest enough to just check it out is going to realize that's just bogus because your life will have such a good testimony. You know, we said goodbye this week to three amazing people that were a part of the Grace family. We say goodbye to Teresa Mosher, to Ryan Vogel, and to Jim Anderson. And I want to tell you, all three of those individuals were just incredible in the way they conducted their lives. They had such a good witness for Christ. And I sadly was unable to go to uh, Teresa's funeral. But I want to tell you, for the two guys, Jim Anderson and Ryan Vogel, I'm telling you, the praise... The admiration, the respect for their lives was amazing. And over and over again, the people who eulogized them said things like this, I've never seen anybody more giving. Wow, what servants they were. They just loved people. They ministered through their actions. One said his hobby was people. So giving, give you the shirt off their back. And both believers and unbelievers agreed. Wow, these people were amazing. Now, I'll tell you something. You know what the answer is for the Christian testimony to the world? You give me a church filled with people like that, and I'll give you a church. I'll show you a church whose witness to the world is exceptional. That's what Peter is trying to urge upon the Christians here. Don't worry so much about what people say against you. Let them accuse you of whatever they want. But anybody who's interested in the truth, when they check it out, they're going to realize who you really are. And your lives will speak so loudly that they'll realize, I'm not going to listen to the slander campaign anymore. Third, he says that we make possible an orderly society when we appropriately submit. Look at verse 16. Act as free men and women and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. And then down in verse 18, he actually addresses those who are servants. He addresses those who are servants. This is so foreign to our ears, and yet I think there's an application to us that's powerful. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, for this finds favor 
if for the sake of conscience toward God, you bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it? This finds favor with God. Peter is talking here to people who are actually slaves. And there were many in the Roman world. Scholars tell us that any, somewhere between one-third and one-half of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire were enslaved in some way, one-third to one-half. Now, when we hear that, we immediately think of the horrific slavery that happened in the early, earliest years of our own country the United States, that slavery that the Civil War brought to an end. But the slavery in the first century, when this book was written, was actually very different. It was horrific, believe me, in its own ways, but it was actually very different. It wasn't racially driven. And one of the things that was dramatically different is that slaves were given all kinds of professional tasks. Most tutors, most teachers, most mentors of young people were actually slaves. Slaves were often accountants. They often handled finances and so on and so forth. And there was, it was a lot more common that you could practice something called manumission, which was you could get out of slavery um, with some... It was pretty common to do that. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 to slaves, he said, if, if you can free yourself, do so. Through all the, the appropriate ways. So what application does this have to us? And by the way, why didn't Peter go into his own version of the I have a dream speech here? That's a great question. That's a great question. Why didn't he do that? My guess, you can have your own, my guess is that he honestly believed that transformation in the Roman Empire with all of its dynamics was much more likely not from campaigning in the streets and encouraging rioting and trying to change laws, but rather trying to change hearts one heart at a time. I believe he believed that the gospel was so powerful that his hearts were transformed, eventually the whole society, the whole culture would actually be transformed. But what does this say to you in your workplace today? You know, many of you go to a job every day that you really don't like, right? I read a survey recently, and the number one reason given in the survey why people didn't like their boss is their boss told them what to do. Can you imagine that? Their boss told them what to do. So it's, it's not always our boss, it's authority that we struggle with. And I would simply say to you, and Peter knows this is an incredibly difficult message to hear, but I would say to you that in that workplace, even though your boss may be, can we just use the word, even your, though your boss may be an idiot, Okay, we're keeping it real. I would say that your character and conduct in that situation is really going to do a lot to show your boss, to show him or her what real Christianity is about. 
and you may never know how closely they're watching your life and what kind of opportunity you may have to witness. There's one, by the way, he gives here the ultimate example of this in verse 21 and following where he says, for you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. And it says we've been called to follow in his steps. Now, folks, I want to tell you, there's no such thing as ultimate freedom with no boundaries. My freedom to swing my fist anywhere, any way I want to, ends where your nose begins. My freedom to blare music loudly all night ends where somebody else's freedom to sleep begins. My freedom to preach for two hours or more ends where your freedom to have lunch or dinner begins. Okay? There's no such thing as unlimited freedom. God is a God of order, not chaos. And here's here's the heart of the message today. As we appropriately submit to his guidelines and the rules and commandments and guidance he's given us, we really find our freedom paradoxically in that. You know, a funny thing about the expressways around here, we have the north way, we have the through way, and those of you who travel, you travel on all kinds of expressways in other major cities. But you know one of the funny things about an expressway? There are more rules and regulations governing that expressway than any other road. I mean, you get on it, and immediately you, say, you see signs that say, no stopping, no U-turn, Okay? Uh, stop only for emergencies, right? Slower traffic, keep right, you know? Um, and then you even have these speed limits. I mean, are these people control freaks or what? It gives you minimum and maximum speed limits. It's, it's unbelievable, okay? But why do we still take the expressway? Because it's still the most efficient, most effective, and safest way to get to our destination. In fact, sometimes, in spite of all those rules, we still call it the freeway. My friends, life is much like that. You can say, I don't want anybody telling me how to drive. And you can take your skateboard up on the expressway, your go-kart. You can get up there and go in the wrong direction. You can stop in the middle of it and have a tailgate party. But if people did that, it would cause so many accidents and so much havoc, it wouldn't even be worth taking. God has said, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Why? So you can be on the freeway. So your life can be on the freeway. You can have the best life, the abundant life here and hereafter. One final thing as we close. Appropriate submission to authority makes progress in our sanctification possible. 
He says in verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You know, I really believe that the story of the prodigal son probably summarizes this as well as anything. The prodigal son was tired of his dad's rules. He said, I'm tired of living here. I'm tired of my dad and his rules. I want my inheritance. I want it now. And he was out of there. And he left with his pride. He left the rules behind. He left with all of his money. And he began to enjoy some riotous living. But when it was all gone... He found himself the slave to a pig farmer, the most humiliating thing in the world for a Jewish young man. And in the pig pen, he had an aha moment. And he realized, you know what? My life's not on the freeway here. I'm stuck somewhere, and I don't even know which way's up. I've totally lost direction because I've basically not submitted my life to what's right. You know what he did? With his aha moment, he went back home. And his dad embraced him mercifully. And he brought, he said, bring the shoes, bring the ring, bring the coat. Kill the fatted calf. This son of mine that was dead is now alive. And you know what? That's a picture of what needs to happen to every one of us really in life. We may think, oh, uh, I'm going to call the shots for myself. I'm going to do what I want to do. God says, well, if you do that, you're not going to be traveling on the freeway. But when we humbly submit ourselves to God's will and say, you have a right to tell me what to do, it's amazing how free we become. And the Bible says when the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Father, would you help us today that wherever we are on our journey, however much struggle we may have with authority, help us to understand today that submitting to your will in our lives is the way to get on the freeway. And Father, if that means we need an aha moment in some pig pen, I pray that you would bring that. I pray that you would give us just the opportunity we need, God, to turn and to give our lives to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.